Hey all, welcome to Mass Way. My name is Justin. This is Nelly. We're sitting in for Wade. Giving him a little break. Y'all, uh, we're going to play uh, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, an old Bruce Coburn song here to start with.
Well, good evening and welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, made it in on a Memorial Day weekend. It's good to see all of you and even at a different time than normal. Um, usually most people, I think, just have the, the switch up at twice a year. Uh, but here at Emmaus Way, we actually have it four times a year because you get the daylight exchange, day, daylight, uh, what is it called? Daylight savings time change and then you also get a uh, summer change in the time. So meeting later now at six. It's good to see that all of you made it out here. Um, we at Emmaus Way are a group of people who are trying to discern the gospel, not only in the lives of each other and in this community, but also in the greater context of this city um, of North Carolina, and trying to see where God is already at work so that we can join in the things that are going on. We're a dialogical community where we discuss the word of God together. We wrestle with what it means in our lives together as we try to become and follow after Christ, becoming more, uh, becoming disciples of him. Um, so I want to welcome those of you that are here with us tonight for the first time, um, and those of you that are with us regularly, uh, as always, welcome back. Um, a few things to mention tonight. We have a couple announcements. First of all, I want to thank Justin and Nellie and all, as always, Dale for being with us tonight. Um, Wade had a concert, house concert last night. You want to tell us how it went real quick? Yeah, they were fantastic. Krista yeah. and Wade were doing their... Uh their uh, recent releases. They're great. We should ask Mark or Josh or yeah. trained musicians then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put you on the spot. <laughs> um, good well, good. Well, thank you all for being with us and thank you for uh, leading our, our worship tonight. Um, few announcements coming up that are uh, kind of social gatherings in the community. Uh, first of all, I want to remind you that uh, Philip and Mackenzie have invited, uh, sent out a social invitation to you to join them this Friday evening for, what do they call it, Flicks and Floats uh, in their backyard. I think they're going to show, do you know what movie they're going to show, Julie? It was E.T., yeah, this has been rescheduled because it rained out, it got rained out last time. So this next Friday, or this coming Friday, um, at Philip and McKenzie's house, I'm sure the directions will come out via email. Um, it's off of James Street uh, at 7. Philip and McKenzie, if you get the podcast, we announced it as 7. Um, but you'll look for the email that's coming out. Um, also, this next Sunday coming up, um, Phil and Susan Jakes have invited us all over to their house um, after service for a uh, get-together potluck, hangout. We usually have done this twice a year, pretty much. Um, it's a great time just to kind of hang out with one another, talk uh, even after the service, enjoy the beginning of summertime together. Um, and one more thing, this next weekend, for those of you that are interested, Durham can. Um, we'll be hosting its Delegates Assembly. Um, it's going to be at Watch Street Baptist Church just down the road here. Uh, and it will start at 3 p.m. Do you have any update for us? I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot, just kind of how many... Do we, did we say how many people we were going to be bringing? Ten people. Ten people. Okay, so we're shooting for ten. All right, so that, that's, that's a pretty aggressive number for us, but I like it. I like it. So um, if you want to be involved... Uh, please let me know or let Dave Klein know, um, Dave Thiessen or Vanessa know, and we will put you in the loop. We'll put you on the email chain. We'd love to have you come with us. You can see what's going to be going on in Durham Can the next uh, several years. We're going to continue to work on five issues. Um, if you don't know what Durham Can is, it's a local grassroots political organization that our congregation is involved in with a number of other congregations in this city working on issues like education, on homelessness, 
um, working on issues for jobs and looking uh, at uh, in the greater economy on issues of usury um, and foreclosures on homes. So some of the things that we'll be working on, um, you'll get a better idea of that. We'll also be meeting with some of the local um, heads of education, mayor, different people, asking them about um, their willingness to work with us on these things. So it's a really kind of powerful event. Um, it's multi-ethnic, uh, multi-congregation. It, it really is an interesting thing if you ever get to come participate in it um, to see what's going on. Okay, let me see. Is there anything that I've missed as far as announcements? Anybody have anything? Okay. Well, once again, welcome to Emmaus Way. Um, it's great to see all of you here, and we enjoy, uh, we'll enjoy sharing worship with you tonight. song is a song that me and Nellie both wrote about um, sort of persecution standing up for the truth and you want to be vindicated and so I feel like there's a kind of a, a tinge of you know I want to be vindicated but in the end you just want to get on good terms and and deal with things that aren't uh, necessarily black and white
guys thank you so much hey you know one of the things while we're, while the music's still hanging there with us uh, a couple quick reminders um, that we're gonna um, for the next couple of weeks we're gonna walk our way through um, Trinity and Ascension and Pentecost uh, and the lectionary and the lectionary text today is first Peter 3 uh, you've got it in front of you 22 through 31 I think but one of the things that's unique about this text is if you can imagine this this is written in um, in um, as a letter that was carried throughout all of Asia Minor. So this wasn't written to a very specific community, but it was written to a suffering community. And so um, one of the things that was one of the major struggles that we'll see is that this was, in fact, the last song was great. It, it, it has that, that angst of people who are being deeply persecuted for their thoughts, their beliefs. Uh, and in many ways, people would say, hey, if, I, if I'm standing for the gospel, wouldn't there be like hundreds and thousands and millions of people surrounding this, but they were faced with that horrible challenge that the community of faith was very small. The evidence that they were kind of standing for the work of God was pretty minimal. So as we were singing tonight, I was thinking, gosh, so many of the things you guys did such a great job of helping us think a little bit about this lovers in a dangerous time, this idea of how does one live this path of love when it's deeply dangerous to do that. And then uh, that Pierce Pettis song confounded by the evidence. Uh, in some ways, you guys did such a good job of setting up the polemic that takes us into this story tonight. So as is our tradition, though, before we jump into the text, I'm going to give you a second to stand up, greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ. If you happen to be somebody around somebody you don't know, introduce yourself and I'll give us a shout in a moment. So we're um, beginning our summer regimen in Emmaus Way and I don't know where my mind is tonight, but I thought of a great Emmaus Way dialogue drinking game. Every time I spin <laughs> to the people who aren't here, then you can have a cup of coffee or something. <laughs> but, so I'm kind of feeling a little weird here that there's no one behind me, as odd as that sounds. Uh, but many thanks to Jenny and others. One of the things that we're, we're wanting to do, you guys know our community really reshapes itself 
in the summers. And a couple of quick reminders on that. One is that, um, so we're, we're really trying a little bit of a lighter setup. There's less, uh, less of some of the uh, aesthetic things in the room. The sofas aren't here. And so if you are a volunteer this summer, one of the things we're hoping that you'll be able to do, because we know summers are busy and full, is we'll be able to kind of get in and get out a little bit faster, not in terms of talking to each other, but in terms of the work of Emmaus Way. So Jenny's done a really good job of kind of doing that. Um, so thank you for that. The other reminder is um, our community, it's actually one of the exciting things about Emmaus Way is that there's probably 15 to 40 people who might be some of our best friends ever who we don't know yet. Um, and people tend to start drifting back here between June and August, uh, particularly folks that are graduate students or people who are moving with new jobs or that sort of thing. So just a reminder, because we always have less people in the summer anyway, but if you're coming, uh, try to try to get here by six, which was great tonight because when we have Yes, they're usually the first ones here, um, as is typically the case. Um, but again, we're hoping that kind of life in Emmaus Way this summer will look a lot like next Sunday, uh, uh, being able to kind of spend a great summer evening on the Jakes' porch, having food and, uh, and uh, good beverages and enjoying each other and, and living our faith, not just missionally, but, but in our relationships with each other. So that's kind of always something to be aware of. And one of the things that we're going to do this summer is we'll try to shape the Dialogue and what we do in the in the evenings to to be contextual for kind of summer lives. But I do want to remind you of this: um, that after the next, I guess it'll be three weeks in the lectionary. Um, the series for the summer is going to be one that I'm really excited about. It's we're going to kind of re-examine what we call text for a few weeks and look at the uh, fiction and how fiction has shaped our hopes and our faith and our struggles and our questions and and let fiction be the bouncing point back into to biblical text. And so uh, I love fiction, so I could probably, uh, you know, come up with like 50 things immediately. But I would love for you, if there's something that you've read, something that you feel like the whole community would be excited to know about, email me in the next few weeks and say, hey, check this out. One of the things I imagine doing on, on our dialogues on Sunday nights is having... Um, if, for example, if Mark suggests something, maybe, you know, beginning with, hey, Mark, take five minutes and tell us why you chose this. What was exciting about you? How did this challenge you, frustrate you, uh, it, empower you in a certain way? And what we'll do each week is we'll send out a, you know, maybe an eight to ten page PDF where, uh, just so you'll have a chance to sample what we're reading. But I'll try to get something ready in about three weeks so you'll be able to look at the whole summer because I imagine there'll be things that you'll say, okay, that's uh, July 6th. I want to read that before now and then. So, um, so I'm excited about that. And, and some of the other summers we want to do this with film. We want to do this with art, uh, is to help us understand that not only do we have biblical text, which is God's word, but, but so many amazingly creative things have been done in, in reflection or reaction to, to faith. And so, uh, if you've got something that you're really excited about, drop me an email. I'll, I'll be excited. I'm kind of starting to read a few things over already in the next couple weeks, but I'm excited about hearing what you're interested in. So thank you for that. All right. Now tonight, um, we're, we're in the lectionary and we're in first Peter, um, three it's verses 13 through 22. But before we jump into the text, I have a couple questions for you. First is this, can somebody, or maybe even a couple people give me an example of a way that you suffered or struggled because of your faith 
or a conviction that you held very tightly. Uh, can somebody give me an example of that? It's a way that you, you suffered and suffering could, you know, there's a whole continuum of what one might call suffering. So I'm not looking for an example of, um, you know, Jim Thomas wrote a book on uh, ethics and epidemiology and the faculty at UNC nailed him to uh, a, a campus. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be dramatic, but, but, uh, but give me an example of a way that you may have suffered for your faith or, or a conviction or belief that you, held, you hold strongly. Because of, of something that you believed, yeah? And are, is that, are those relationships still experiencing some separation? Yeah. Krista actually did a song last night in her, her uh, new CD on that in terms of uh, struggles that she had with her family uh, and, and how painful that is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Others? in terms of vocation, um, that you know, I told my parents that that's what I wanted to work in ministry and get my master's divinity. Not necessarily my parents, but kind of extended family um, saw that as a waste of time and good brain and all of that. So uh, still taking some convincing. Yeah. You couldn't convince them you were just going for the big bucks right, in ministry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and again, um, interestingly, I thought about that in this community, a lot of people in helping professions where some people would have said, you know, oh, my gosh, you're not going to be a social worker, are you? Or or and even, you know, even thinking about uh, uh, income and things like that. Um, you know, someone like Kimmy who has to spend eight years, seven years preparing to be a doctor. These are, you know, there's certain things you can do that are a lot faster that get you out of the school world. So, yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? Something that you, a chance, a time when you suffered for faith or conviction, something that you, you held tightly. Well, coming with, so relevant to this is that a lot of times it's in the churches are was raised in and experienced as a young adult. When you want to know reasons for things, or you want to critique, or you want to ask questions, you suffer. Because you're usually, and you suffer in an interesting way, because usually people don't tell you, oh, you heretic, you're doubting the faith. They say, Andrew, if you just understood, and then they patronize you. It's a pleasant form of suffering. Because you're, you're not in a position where you're being told, don't ask those questions. Instead, you're treated like a kind of damn. You know, like everybody already knows the answer, but we can't tell you right now, so we'll move on, or whatever it is. You're undermining people's faith. If you have, you know, mm. if you have any experiences, I can recommend some places so you can try them. <laughs> 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 part of this is that evangelical problem with intellectuals. Yeah. Evangelical churches don't like people being insulated. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, do something practical, why do we sell the stuff and give it to the poor, etc. So like, that's a big issue because, and there's a little proof text that goes on with it, which is, they talk about the psalm, which is, lean not on your own understanding, but they kind of swallow the word, oh, lean not on any understanding, yeah. and now you're like, oh, wait, wait, understanding's bad? 
Well, actually, if you go away and you read the whole Proverbs and the whole Psalms, going on and on about how you should get understanding. Yeah. I think that's... That I, I won't even try to, to match that because I've had so many experiences like that. But the, one of the things I'm confident I will never say to you, Andrew, is, hey, if you just understood. <laughs> that's no way Andrew's intellect. I'm never, I'm unlikely to ever do that. But, but, but it is amazing how, um, and it might be worse than flat out you're an idiot, is the subtle uh, patronizing that, that you sometimes experience for, for, for uh, stepping into a, sometimes a courageous direction. Uh, in fact, it's, it's an irony. The more courageous you are, the more you would expect people to surround you with enthusiasm or applause or you know, at least that friendly look at a half marathon or a marathon where people are thinking, oh my God, that guy's going to die, but I'm going to clap and smile. And, and we don't often get that. Uh, it, it's, it's really true. And, and the more creative one is about, about thought or more passionate about following God, if it's it's outside the norm, uh, we still suffer some manage uh, uh, some some measure of 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 patronizing or outright critique, even family separation. Now, this is a harder question. I'm, I'm comfortable with some crickets on this because I had trouble coming up with kind of like a backup story on this one. But have you ever experienced some measure of, of vindication? for um, a, a risk that you took or maybe even a faith risk that you took. Uh, some, some kind of sense of one of those moments at the end of the Lifetime movie network kind of thing where, you know, it's a, uh, I'm going to date myself with this, like the officer and a gentleman moment when the, you know, Richard Gere runs and, 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 and grabs David and kisses him at the end of the movie and everybody's watching and going, oh, you, you know, no, you know, what? I mean, have you experienced vindication for a risk that you took based on faith or conviction? Stay married to Gail. Stay married to Gail. <laughs> <laughs> but Gail, is this part of still your ongoing suffering for your own convictions? <laughs> have you experienced vindication? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes people stay with us. Absolutely. Vindication. So maybe another question is, how many people are still waiting? Yeah, okay, let's turn that inside out. You can think of something that you'd really love a sibling, a parent, a friend, a pastor, a coach, someone to kind of, it dawns on them, oh my goodness, I really treated AJ wrongly in the seventh grade because, or whatever. How many people are waiting for that moment and you know what it is? There's a few. So vindication is a challenging concept. I, I don't know that you, you, you know, there's certain television shows that I've watched. Like if any of you used to watch West Wing. Uh, kind of a political dialogue. That to me is like fantasy television. That's my dream of the way that I wish politics would work. People with intense convictions that dialogue with each other. They fight. And, and sometimes I watch shows like that uh, as a prayer of kind of going, wouldn't it be amazing if it worked that way? 
But in reality, it doesn't. And some of you guys who are graduate students know that there's probably no one that ha- the president doesn't have as much power as, uh, as a, a faculty member over their graduate students. I mean, you know that sometimes it just doesn't always work that way. Let's zone, zone into First uh, Peter for a moment or two. Um, a couple things that I want to remind you of. This is a letter that was not written to a specific community, but was written to a whole area of Christians. Uh, what would probably be Turkey today or Asia Minor. It was passed from church to church. This was late enough that there was severe suffering going on for people who were still following this way of, of Jesus. And Peter has this almost crazy idea. He writes to people who are being marginalized or patronized. Um, Particularly earlier, just before this, he writes to women, children, citizens of the empire, people that had very little voice, very little power, and says something crazy to them. He says, you have a unique opportunity to have missional voice because of your suffering, because of your persecution, you have this unique, almost megaphone, so to speak. And he also is writing to remind this suffering church and marginalize. It's actually kind of a funny book, but some of the most grandiose statements about followers of Christ, people of God, people following and belonging to God, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. These incredibly grandiose words are applied to this little huddled mass of people in whole persecuted, afraid, uh, uh, sometimes unwilling to talk about their baptism, all of those things. And he gives those titles to those people. It's almost a bitter joke, so to speak. But what he's trying to do is to challenge them that there's a unique way to live in a post-resurrection world. And we've been spending a lot of energy on that, talking about the coming of the Spirit and John's gospel and what that means to live on the far side of Jesus' resurrection. Peter is all about that in in writing uh, to the people. So um, what I'd like to do is let's read this together tonight. Could I Actually, I forgot to ask somebody, but would somebody uh, take the text and just read it? Let's put it in a different voice. And I'll give you a, a few kind of clues This has been a a long debated text, so I'll give you a couple handles on this text, and then we'll jump back into talking about it. Somebody give me a shout and read read this out. Oh, good, Jim. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In the state he went, in that state he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently 
in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Thanks, Jim. Let me give you a couple of little footnotes to this text. And let me tell you what question I'm going to ask you in just a second. Um, I want you at first to kind of put your arms around this and answer the question. Peter, writing to a suffering church, uh, what does it mean to live and embody the resurrection? For, for what is he, in other words, what is he telling these people that they should be able to do, embrace? Uh, what, what's their mission? In that world, so that's the question that's coming. But let me give you a couple of footnotes on this. Um, this and as as uh, Jim read through this, you probably caught a few things in prison spirits that were naughty during the days of Noah. And, I mean, this is a this is a this is a passage that if you like to read, uh, you could go over to Duke Divinity's library and probably read till. Um, four or five years from now and still not read everything that's been written about this text. But there's a couple things I want to call your attention to. It says, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Actually, the eager is a noun there that that could be translated is, um, who's going to harm you if you're a zealot or a partisan? For doing good. I mean, a part, you know, when you think of a partisan, I mean, you think of a revolutionary person, somebody maybe with a machine gun who is so ecstatic about a political cause that they're willing to fight or die for it. Or a zealot, the kind of person, you know, you're having dinner with them and, and you know, you just, they ask you like crazy questions like, was it free range chicken? And, you know, where did the food come from? And is it local food? And you're like, I don't care. I just want to like eat this. And, you know, and, and they keep bringing up a cause that matters to them. And you're like, this really matters to you. And, and, and in some ways, and, and by the way, I love that, but, uh, but, but, but if you will substitute that word there, uh, you know, who's going to harm you if you're a zealot, a partisan for doing good. Um, but then it goes on. And, and if, if we were like, got excited, no one can hurt me. Verse 14 says, because even if you suffer for doing right, and I'm going to tell you all about things that you can suffer for. So in no way was that a promise not to suffer, but in some ways we're being compelled to be a zealot for, for doing right. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, but in your hearts, revere Christ and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, we're used to hearing that phrase. It's kind of like you better have a really kind of complex apologetic proof. You know, uh, you read youth group Josh McDowell 10,000 times and had the, the points and, you know, the, the place in the notebook to open what he's really talking about there is that life in a pagan society for the early church was going to be a daily trial. People were not going to let it go. Uh, You know, Dan and Elizabeth might be at a party at 430 on a Sunday afternoon and say, well, we got to leave a little bit early because we've got to go to church. Um, And in our culture, people would kind of go, well, people go to church, you know, uh, saps, but go to church or whatever. You know, we wish we were going, you know, whatever. In their culture, it was always a trial. You would have gotten, why would you do that? Why would you do the things that tend 
seem to undermine the world that we, as we know and understand. So he's talking about this really intense polemic environment that following faith and following Christ was never easy for them. Um, and then going on in there, he talks about Jesus being put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Now, one of the things that we're really quick to think about when we hear this body spirit, we tend to jump really quick and drop a wedge between our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies to the idea that, okay, they messed with Jesus's body, but they can't mess with his spirit. Um, in some ways, the, the writer wouldn't have known that kind of duality between body and spirit. What he's basically saying is that this distinction of Jesus's life in the flesh um, is entirely different from his resurrected life. This is a life that is unhindered by human limitation. So to some degree, we're not being told that, hey, that, you know, your, your body doesn't matter. It's what happens in your spirit. He's basically saying that Jesus was resurrected to the point where his life is unhindered by any human limitation with the implication that that's the outcome for those who follow Christ. And then it goes on to say, in that state, meaning as a resurrected person, if you remember the last several weeks, we've talked a lot about the idea that the resurrection was this ultimate declaration of the goodness of God's plan. This was the evidence. This was the moment. This was the, the coming of the spirit was this incredible next step in the unfolding plan of, of God's salvation work. So in that state, as a resurrected being, he went and made proclamation, and I'm going to inverse these, to spirits imprisoned. Now, what the heck is spirits there? Um, there's a lot of ways to read that. Uh, Augustine thought that this was the souls of the human beings who died in the great flood, and Jesus was preaching to them and releasing them. Uh, but interestingly, and I'll give you an opinion on this, uh, spirits, that word was almost never used. I think you might find one use of that word where it refers to the kind of a disembodied soul of a human being. That is not typically how that term is used. Remember, we need to step into the cosmology of the people who were reading the Bible. And these are the people who referred to Jesus's work of healing as casting out evil spirits. And so one of the things that's happening here is the language of spirits was the language of the demonic, the spiritual world, people who were not under the, the work and the control of God. And they had lots of different, there were lots of, of, of apocryphal books and apocalyptic books that describe who the spirits are, but at least in their language, they're talking about the forces of evil, the spiritual beings that align themselves against God. That's how the hearers would have heard this. And then it says imprisoned. But interestingly, the, the Greek word for prison there also means refuge. Um, and so to some degree, I think what's being described here is that Jesus as a resurrected being is making some proclamation to those that are aligned against him in refuge. So imagine this. This is kind of a silly image. But there's just this whole group of of demonic entities sitting in a barca lounger holding a beer really like a cheap beer they're leaning back they're watching television they're kicking back and they are saying no one can get to us 
I remember, I won't give you the whole story. When I was a student at Carolina, there was this heinous, unbelievable, uh, horrible scandal related to a fraternity at Carolina that uh, made the media all over the place. It was, a, it was a very, very affluent group of people. And they interviewed these people the next day. And they basically said, no one can touch us. Would you like us to tell you how many governors from the state of North Carolina came from our fraternity house? They love us. No one will do anything. And they were actually right uh, for this unbelievably heinous act. Uh, they got probation, which meant they couldn't have like an intramural basketball team. I mean, they were exactly right. They were not imprisoned. They were in refuge. They were in safety. They were in a place of absolute comfort. And when they reopened two years later, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that wanted to, to join their ranks. So this is an opinion, but essentially what we're being told here is that Jesus made proclamation to the, to the forces that were aligned against the work of God who were in refuge. They felt like they were completely inviolate. They, they could not be touched. They could not be bothered. And skipping to the very end of this, it says, um, talking about Jesus, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We've mentioned this many times in our dialogue, but the ancient world looked at a world that was arrayed with lots of spiritual powers and realms that they would have called the heavenlies. And Jesus's proclamation was that I defeated these powers with my resurrection. Paul identifies those powers as the powers of sin and death. And to some degree, using my silly analogy, imagine the powers of sin and death in Barca loungers saying, no one can touch me. We are completely in refuge. We rule this world. We rule with fear. Everybody here is afraid of death. They're afraid of the end of the life. They're afraid of their insignificance. The power of sin, every Everybody here is overwhelmed by guilt. You're racked by the things that you left done or left undone as in the, in the confection. You are under the power of sin and death. That's how you live your life. That's what the guys in the Barca loungers are saying. And to some degree, what First Peter is saying is no, every power, every authority, every being because of Jesus's resurrection is aligned under the power of Christ. So here we see this absolute and total vindiction. I mean, in the sense of vindication, in the sense that uh, it wasn't that just Jesus was raised from the dead, but his raising, his resurrection is a defeat of everything that was utterly aligned against God. And so we leave this with a portrait of every created being under the realm and the power of God. Now, that's, a, that's an opinionated, that's almost a consensus opinion, but that's what many think this is happening here, it, it, that, that Jesus is, we're being told that the resurrected Christ has power over everything. Now, here's the question, the one I told you was coming your way, is, so Peter's writing that to a suffering church, a small church, a huddled church of people, a people who probably didn't see all of the powers of the world aligned under the throne of Christ. What is he asking them to do? What does it mean for them to embrace 
to live or to embody the resurrection based on this kind of reading that I've given you of this text? What are your thoughts on that? You know, and it's interesting, this whole language of the shame of their slander, I didn't make, I didn't mention this, but that's kind of an eschatological reference, meaning this, this is a point, another point of vindication. They're going to know at some point is what the writer is saying. I don't know what to do with that, but he's basically saying they will know, even though you are following and you are odd, your family is not supporting you. Uh, no one, your, your, your betrothed fiance has walked out on you. Uh, you can't get employed. You're odd because of this faith. They're going to know sometime. And I, and I think that's, uh, that's well said, Vanessa. So what does it mean? What does life look like for, for that community? What should they be doing? There's not a lot of fear if you know that the person you're following is in control of everything. Then what do you have to be afraid of? Yeah. His power is complete. Yeah, it's so interesting, Gail. That strikes to the core of this passage that in some ways, and, and I hear this and I go, oh my God, that's the one thing I don't do. But that, that the idea is living without fear. Uh, Dan, I think you raised this point or did in text group several weeks ago of, of if we embrace the resurrection, how does it change us politically, I think is how you asked the question. And one of the things you said is we don't have to live protectively. I don't have to live protecting what's mine because somehow I understand this portrait of how it ends. And so to some degree, that's exactly what we're being told is that fear should have no place. Absolutely. Other ways that this community that's hearing this would maybe live this. Tim, yes, sir. Okay. I want to add a, a PS to Gail's thought. It's not that, I mean, it's not that by doing good we're not going to experience pain. Sure. Suffering. So I would argue there is still something to be afraid of. Um, but whatever that is, it's not final. It's not the final word. And so that gives me courage that what I'm investing in is the thing that has the final word, even mm-hmm. though there could be pain on the way there. Okay. Yeah, that's a good that's a good caveat. Um, I was just thinking about writing their oppressors and um, Jesus' words to turn the other cheek and to walk an extra mile with someone's backpack and just, you know, this is their community that they live in, people are hating on them, you know, responding to them. I hate that crap, by the way. <laughs> I really hate that part of the Bible. But that really is true. I mean, if, 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 there, if those who slander are going to know sometime, then because, you know, I go crazy on this. I, I, I want to be the Lord of highway justice. 
the Lord of humanitarian justice, the Lord of teaching. I mean, I mean, I, I just wake up some days kind of going, I want to fix things today. I'm, I'm really going to find a way to get, you know, and, and, and that often does not produce the most loving response to me. It, but it's the response of, I'm going to show somebody how they're wrong, so to speak. But to some degree, if the final word is resolved in a certain way, it frees them to love. In an, in an amazingly unique way. And interestingly, anybody who knows anything about the early part of church history, what was remarkable is the way they loved despite the way that they were suffered. It's a fantastic point. Other ways that they would have heard this, I, I, I do think they would have heard this as like, oh crap. I mean, gosh, <laughs> I thought we were going to find the secret weapon and, and drop it on them, but, but, uh, but they read that to love. There's no way they suffer because you need to suffer for good when you suffer there's no Tony Robbins in the biblical world that says you will unleash the giant within you and have the life that it's, it's not there. It's so funny that it's suffer or suffer. Exactly. <laughs> Insights of modern psychology is actually you, you can't get away. You, you, at some point, you've got to you've got to suffer if you're going to become mature. You're, you're going to have to suffer some kinds of pain if you're going to deal with your issues. And so, you know, whatever kind of approach to modern psychology is great, everything is bad, whatever. That's one of its insights. Is that, oh wow, look, it's right. Um, that you can't you can't avoid suffering, but there's healthy kinds of suffering and unhealthy kinds of suffering in the way. It's kind of what Peter's saying. Yeah, you suffer for doing good. You've got all these resources. Yes, in the end, if, you know, the suffering isn't the last word. But also, if you're suffering for doing good, then that's, you, you know, ultimately more worthwhile than suffering for doing evil. But the world doesn't think that. The world thinks you can get away with it. Hold that thought because I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But I made a commitment this week. We were uh, Amy and, and uh, who was with us. It was Amy and um, Hannah and uh, and Wade. One of the things we made a decision is to not do this dialogue with caveats because the caveats would have taken all night. <laughs> but because. We know that this, this text has been manipulated such that people who are suffering have been told that they should be joyful. People have stayed in abusive relationships. That's a caveat. People who have no sense of boundary. There's a million caveats to this text. We just didn't want to do like an anti-sermon and then come around and say, Sarah Kate, what should we do? <laughs> Love people and miss the, the power of that point. But thanks for saying that. I'm going to come back to that. Travis, you're going to say something too, won't you? I was going to say it's interesting that there's, there's all this stuff about... Jesus is Lord and all this is accomplished and you know God is sovereign so you don't like to worry and that all that's very strong but that's all in some sense contingent on Christ's suffering but that's only true because Christ suffered implication being as you participate in that suffering mm -hmm. you're in some sense making it true that God is king so it's really interesting that it combines that kind of hope with with recognition that you are going to suffer and that certainly Christ's suffering is salvific and I think there's a strong implication that our we can choose to let our suffering also be in a sense salvific. 
Yeah, I think Dan's the one who's gotten me doing this because I don't know. Dan has a naughty pleasure. He likes to listen to uh, radio preachers when he drives through South Carolina. I'm not so sure why he does that, but he's called me many times. You got to hear what this guy's saying. He's putting the phone by the radio. So I occasionally go home on Sunday nights and listen to like Sunday night health and wealth preachers (laughs) just because it just boggles my mind. And, And I sit there and I kind of go, oh, in our culture, the gospel has become this ticket around suffering. I mean, if you can just follow God, you can rise above the suffering that's out there. And, and what Travis is saying is that has nothing to do with what's happening here, is that the whole implication is that we are aligning our lives, like that crazy vine analogy we looked at a couple of weeks ago, with Christ and Jesus' suffering, and then ultimately Jesus' vindication and resurrection. But so many times our gospel has been something that avoids this idea of aligning ourselves with the life of Christ. Now back to Andrew's point. Here's the second question that I want to ask you guys tonight is, you probably picked this up already. We read this text a little bit differently than the ancient readers read that. We have a lot more power, right? We, we don't face the same kind of fears that the early church may have faced. We aren't marginalized. Now that isn't to say that some of you haven't faced significant marginalization because of some aspect of your life. Totally get that. But collectively, we don't read this text in the same precarious place that the early church read that. Um, I don't know what you would say to this, but I wanted to throw this to you to just basically say, how might that affect your hearing and your embodiment of this, understanding that, especially, you know, we like to joke about us as kind of the educated poor, but we are a a group of people that has lots of cultural affluence in the sense of education and, and possibility. Most of us were raised with a pretty intense sense of possibility in our lives. And, and as, as we pointed out here, that wasn't the case of the early, it was suffer or suffer. Um, so does that change your hearing of this text or any way that you would express it in your life? It might magnify something. It might take something away. It might redirect you in a certain way. Thoughts on that? That's a hard question. I know does what change? Sorry. how, how you would, in other words, knowing that our position is different, right. how does it affect your hearing of this text and, and living it as scripture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and one of the caveats, <laughs> this is another one of our caveats to, to this that we decided not to do a sermon on, but we all know people who just can't live unless they're suffering. <laughs> I mean, that they, they just have to find it. I mean, if there is an anvil falling somewhere, they're diving to get under it. And, and to some degree, but it, it does... It does create that kind of dissonance in our lives that that suffering can be an alien part of our experience from time to time. And there's many times where we're not asked to lose something for being a part of, of Christian community. So it, it is, it's a disquieting sense of that. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. It's a good point. Thank you. You understand that we have to be always prepared. Part because um, we don't have to, so we don't. It's my things that we would, that these guys probably would know how to respond to, 
um, harder situ hard situations, being able to move into those with much more grace, we usually are realize afterwards that we haven't done as well as we could. And I think just because we don't have to. That's a really good point. I had lunch today with dear, dear friends, wonderful friends who are not, uh, who are kind of part of our social group, but are, are not uh, church people. They're not Christ followers. They're, they're wonderful people. They put me to shame in terms of their lives, but they don't do this, what we're doing right now. And what if they had said, I mean, you got to leave for church. Why do you do that? Couldn't you have found a real job? Or couldn't you have, you know, we don't get that question. It gets kind of polited out from time to time. And so to some degree, we're, we're not used to somebody. And, and maybe you've had that experience, but I don't get that very often. I get more of a, hmm, that's neat. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No. If I understand right, I hope this relates. You know, I've suffered quite a bit as far as being an American goes. And I've been through some very significant physical deals. But when I weigh it against what the people in this passage are suffering, it, it just seems so foolish. And so, you know, it's hard to balance sometimes because what I'm going through is it's difficult. But yet, compared to this, it's nothing. You know, it's nothing. And compared to so many in most of the world, it's nothing. And that's a, that's a difficult thing, being a privileged American and yet suffering. It, it's such a strange place to offer. Maybe even to the point that this incredible passage, and I'm not speaking to you personally, Nell, but to any of us, of vindication, you kind of go, I don't need to be vindicated. I am living the life. I mean, there's a few nuisances in my life. I'm really pissed off the guy who cut me off on Roxborough Street tonight. But other than that, I still drove my car here safely and got to be a, you know, to look over God's word with some of my dearest friends. You know, to some degree, maybe the most blessed parts of this are lost on us. Like, oh, dude, well, that's no big deal. Uh, I'll vindicate myself. Um, and, and maybe we miss what is incredibly powerful in this. Maybe one of the casualties we face is an, a diminished hope because we don't need the hope that's given to us. Right, because honestly, in the end, it's Christ, and he's using everything to form something amazing in us. And I think I agree with you. If I'm not suffering, then maybe something's off, you know. Not in a, not in a depressive way, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But there, there's this there's assumption in here that whatever it is that we're supposed to be about, it, it's hope. And it's not really it's not really spelled out here. It's just assumed. That's you're, that's what you're going to have to explain is that you're hopeful people. But I, so I think in our situation we have to figure out well, what is it that we're hoping for. Because if you're you know if you're really persecuted and people around you are getting physically harmed for their faith, then you know what you have to hope for. But you know. I mean, for us, what what is it? I don't know. Is it that, you know maybe we want to make more money, or you know, there's lots of things we come up with that we hope for. But how do you how do we sort of learn how to hope under the mentorship of of these saints that have gone before us and mm -hmm. and and really had to hope? That's a that's a good word. Yeah, AJ. I guess for me at least, I would think sort of piggyback off of that. If we're going to think about what it might mean to hope. It might might lead us to sort of 
join or be in community or relationship with people who are suffering. So even in Durham, like even the Reality Center for me sort of did that when I worked here for a couple of years. Like, you know, I could talk about my sort of like ecclesial, I mean, ecclesial ethics and all this sort of like Duke lingo and all that sort of stuff. But like when I started to meet different teenagers who were going through real sort of situations that really affected their lives, that made me sort of think about my own privilege and what it might mean to sort of like listen to what they're saying and imagine a new way out of that sort of situation, if that makes any sense. It does. I, I had a coffee this week with a woman named Carlene Bryan, who is the director of the Salvation Army and Salvation Army Church. I've known her for 30 years, very casually from New England. We were at Mad Hatter's, which is kind of a polite kind of place to have coffee and feel smart. And um, she's, uh, this is a compliment, Carlene, if you listen to our podcast, Uh, but she has a really loud voice, the kind of coffee shop voice, you know, that coffee shop person that everybody in the room can hear. And they're kind of looking up like, we hear your whole conversation and we're not disappointed you broke up with that guy or whatever. You know, they're just going on and on and on. But she has a loud coffee shop voice. So I'm confident that everybody in Mad Hatter's at 2.30 in the afternoon heard every word that she was saying in our conversation. But um, she began talking about some of the kids that she worked with and she started getting madder and madder. We were talking politics and life issues. And then she just started crying loudly. And my first reaction was, don't let that stuff kind of mess up coffee here. We're having coffee. Uh, uh, and, but the truth was that there was this unbelievable passion for her kind of northeast central Durham community. And interestingly, one of the things that made her mad was the, the, the sectarian approach toward helping in Durham, where, you know, which team are you on? Are you on the CAN team, the DSI, DCIA team, or the Northeastern Committee team, or the, the fact that some of these groups don't even work together? was Because she's like, I'm a recipient. I want you guys to get your crap together. And let me tell you about a kid who doesn't have food that I'm going to see in about 10 minutes. And so I think it's a powerful point that, that in some ways we have, that when we talk about mission as spiritual formation, we're not talking about something that's neat to do. This is the working out of our souls. This is the working out of God's kingdom. It is what happens here with Julie's work at reality isn't kind of a neat thing to pop into. It's something that is in some ways the the cutting edge of God's redemptive work. And we need to remember that. Um, And we also need to be aware that uh, we live in a polite culture where we don't know what's going on in everyone's life around us. We can look around the room and see people that we love, but we don't always know uh, what, what people are, are carrying and, and suffering for. That's a great point. Jesse, your point is one I want to send us to um, confession and absolution on tonight is that, you know, as, as, as traditional for us as we tend to do our liturgy and music, um, and tonight the, the song of confession is it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys picked this or Wade or whatever. This is a song that kind of in my post-church conversations with people, a lot of times people who have not been to Emmaus Way before, I get more verbiage over this song than almost any other song. And this is how it goes sometimes. I have so wanted to blow this off 
so much, so quick. Surely there's a better way to help the world that we're in or be less self-righteous or something. I have wanted to blow this off, but I can't do it. There's something that keeps me following God and hoping in God's completion of this work. This song provokes that conversation many, many times over the last six or seven years. And tonight as we sing this, I want to encourage you to sing it together and sing it as a song of confession that for many of us, we lose sight of not only the hope that we have, the portrait that Gail has pointed out tonight of, of all of it under the throne of God, or as AJ's pointed out, the opportunities that we have to embody that truth in a way that matters in our world. So, um, and one of the things I want to encourage us as we come to the communion table, Amy's going to invite us in just a moment. Um, we look at those conversations as sacred, and I would encourage you that if, if, it's, if it's not silly, to, to say to each other, what is the hope that you hold on to? What is the thing that you, you hold on to? So uh, these guys are going to lead us in a song of confession and a song of absolution that reminds us of the good news that we've, we've heard tonight in First Peter.
Tim uh, promised that there was this was the night of no caveats, but before I start, I have a caveat that this is not a story equating uh, marriage with suffering, so just remember that, <laughs> especially you. Um, but um, I, I was thinking um, tonight, and I was remembering um, one thing that, a story that an um, older mentor had told us when we were living in Orlando and we were going through marriage counseling. Um, it's just this story that stuck with me, um, probably because it rings very true in our lives. Um, so she was saying that in, in dealing with problems and dealing with conflicts, she was giving the example of her own husband who um, had this great habit of leaving the kitchen cabinets and dresser drawers open. Um, so when, he walked, when she walked through, it was as if a tornado had come um, through and, you know, just forgetting the second part of, of getting something out of the cabinet. Um, and my husband has this lovable habit as well. And so, um, but at the end of her telling the story, um, she said, what I've learned about marriage is that I want to spend my whole life becoming a professional cabinet closer um, rather than the, you know, the having a fight about this. Every time um, he does this, I have learned that part of me loving him is closing uh, the cabinets after him. And uh, this just stuck with me, like I said, because I um, learned that that was one of the things that I was going to have to do as, as a, being a good wife to Travis. Um, but it also struck me how true this is just for relationships in general, how we start um, into relationships, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a friendship, whether it be parenting, um, with what we want at the end to happen, right? The person we want to be, in that relationship. Um, I think that's a lot like our relationship with Christ. Um, we encounter Christ, uh, we learn what the gospel is, we learn about the people that we want to be, but we don't get there immediately. I'm not a professional cabinet closer yet, um, and it will take our whole married life probably for me to get there. But what I've learned is that we get to have um, touchstones along the way that help us um, and remind us of that kind of end goal of that person we want to be. As we enter into a relationship with one another and then with Christ, we are fundamentally changed at that moment, but we don't become those people immediately. Um, and that's why we get to become professional listeners to our friends. We get to become professional, um, whatever it is, um, 
helping each other find hope when um, they can't see it for themselves, uh, helping each other do the mundane tasks of life, of parenting, of um, living in community. And I think that that is what the communion table offers us. Um, it allows us to be the people that we know we want to be, but haven't gotten there yet. And so at Emmaus Way, we like to celebrate an open table, um, which means everybody is invited. We have wine and juice, um, which we pour for one another, saying, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And we have bread that we break for one another, saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you. So I encourage you to come to the table, um, to talk to one another, to share with one another, um, and to encourage one another in being those professional cabinet closers that we want to be. Oh, 